We hit a store, we bought the end of 2018. It was a first seller finance deal we structured, but manager was like terrible. Techs are like, one of them is drinking on the job. We completely clean house. The next year we did 1.8 million. We doubled, wow. we, we almost doubled the sales. So we put, wow. 50, put 50 grand in this thing, made 400 grand the next year. What's up everyone, this is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Brian Beers is the president of Prenlin Automotive Group, a 32-store auto repair group that's focused on buying Midas auto repair franchises. Brian took me through the nuts and bolts of what it's like to run 32 auto shops. This was a fascinating conversation. We discussed going from software development to auto repair, pros and cons of franchising, how much money each auto repair shop makes, how Brian sources new shops to buy, his best and worst deals, how consumers can maximize their dollars spent when getting a car repaired, and Brian's predictions for the auto repair industry. Here's my conversation with Brian Beers. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We got Brian Beers on the pod. Brian, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Brian, so I'm super excited about this. I think there's just a ton of uh, a ton of great content here to share and to discuss. Auto repair in general right now is having a moment uh, with you know car prices, um, you know eclipsing all time highs, interest rates. People are definitely keeping their cars longer. Uh, they're fixing them. They're paying more to fix them. And so I think there's just going to be a lot to cover, and I'm really pumped about it. Can you tell us? How did you get into this business? What is what is your background? Yeah, so we're a uh, it's like a legacy business. My dad started in the the seventies. We've run Midas, you know, automotive repair franchises. He started it because his uncle was in Boston or whatever was was into it. So it was just kind of like he was twenty two years old, looking for something to do. Got into it with with my granddad. Uh, started with one location. Him and my uncle over the course of thirty years, you know, grew it to about six to eight locations. I kind of bought and sold them all in the, the Philadelphia metro. Um, and then I joined in 2010 after college, uh, the 08, 09 had been kind of rough on them. They were tired. They're going to sell it, just kind of, kind of walk away. Uh, weren't making any money and I come and, and, you know, breathe this whole new life of, uh, into the business. And I travel the country. I learned best practices from other franchisees and, you know, took six years and then started to acquire other, you know, existing franchisees that want to get out. We kind of snowballed our cash from, you know, the locations we're acquiring into the next one and the next one. And, and, you know, the, the short version is as of today, we have, which is my brother and I, uh, 32 locations, uh, between Philadelphia, Allentown, which is like an hour North of Philly and, and North New Jersey. It's kind of our, our territory. Incredible. Now, did you, did you see yourself joining the auto repair business? I feel like it's so unsexy and you're, like you said, you're in college. Like, what was that like thinking through that? Yeah. So at the time, I mean, I was like, I was kind of like a tech techie guy. I was into like software development. I had a job, um, on South. I went to school in Miami. Which, so which just, by the way, that's even crazier to me that you're into software yeah. development and now you run. Yeah. I did like, and I was like light shots. software development. It's like, yeah. I was like, I, I could make like basic, like database driven, like, like web apps and, and, and stuff. Like I wasn't, I wasn't terrible, but I'm no like Silicon Valley guy. But anyway, I had this job, you know, on South beach working in, in some software stuff. And then I, you know, I thought I saw a lot of you know, talking to them, like a lot of old school, just like, you know, my dad, of course, like there wasn't a ton of software or data behind it. And so I kind of figured, Hey, I could come in and, you know, we could add a lot of this software stuff to like, like streamline the business, you know, have better reporting, have better insights and like, you know, kind of bring us into the modern, modern world. And, and maybe that would create some synergies. And so, uh, you know, as of today, like we have a, a ton of tech in terms of like, at least in the franchise where we use Slack, like all the stores communicate on Slack. So we've got 32 locations, but nobody's on an island. They're competing throughout the day on, on jobs and celebrating success. Who, and who actually uses Slack? Who, who uses it? The, the store yeah, managers all, and the assistant managers. And then all of our back, back office team. Um, yeah, we did something, we did something funny one time. It was totally my, it was totally my decision. Um, and it did not work, but we, we gave Slack initially to every single employee. Oh yeah. We've done and that. So, we yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting experiment. Yeah. You know, technicians and Slack, it's just funny. Oh, yeah. uh, different uses for everyone and how that works out. So I digress. Um, Anyways. Stuff, stuff like that. We, we try to leverage technology and to make, you know, just improve the business. So, yeah. Um, so going back to that initial entry into the business now, when you first came in, right? Like today you run shot, you're the president of the company, you're running the business. What did you initially do? How did you actually get acclimated 
again, I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes. Um, and I think that the shop is, it's definitely a different, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dirtier part of the business. It's, there's more, more of that tribal knowledge comes in handy. So how did you just get acclimated so quickly to the business? Yeah, I mean, I worked 60 hours a week in the stores. I mean, I was like, you know, my first day, I'm like the, I'm, I was kind of like an assistant manager of a, of a sense, you know, where I would just float between the stores and, and, you know, learn the point of sale. I'd talk to the technicians. I'd like quiz them on, you know, what they found, why they need to fix it, you know, what's, the, how they'd prioritize like all this work that they were recommending. And, you know, I'd build the tickets, you know, eventually yeah. I'd, I'd sell the jobs. I mean, I ran, I was a store manager for a while. Uh, and then eventually I kind of, you know, as I, as I got acclimated to it and, you know, saw like we needed to make certain changes and, and, you know, culture fit guys that they weren't right. Yeah. I became kind of like the district manager of a sense where all the, the six stores at the time kind of reported up to me. Uh, and then I started, you know, making our changes and, you know, continued to kind of elevate myself. But honestly, it was just, it was just working in the stores like five, six days a week and, and traveling around the country and, and learning from others. Before we get into the nitty gritty of how you source shops, you know, economics and all that, I'm curious to know why franchise, right? Like why, yeah. why have the franchise shackles? And I say that Obviously, it sounds like a negative connotation, which yep. you're smiling when I'm going to assume it's a good thing. But tell me, why franchise? Like, you know how to run this business. Why don't you escape the franchise world? Like, what benefit does that bring you? Yeah, m multiple ones. So first, in our, in our business, the biggest challenge is real estate, right? Retail automotive, we need 4,000 square foot on a major road that's like, you know, zoned automotive. And so, you know, you look around these days, especially in the Northeast, you know, where, where we're at. Like it is becoming harder and harder to find those spots. And a lot of those prime spots are, are major brands, right? They're, they're, they're franchises or they're, or they're corporate. And so the, the, the number one thing that we get as a franchise is, is access to like, you know, uh, have those shops, right? Occupy those shops. Like I can, I can go and I can take over a store that has, has a great spot. We're looking now for more real estate and we, we can't find it. Like, and we don't have like the unit economics don't necessarily work that we can go and buy some lot and like build this, you know, 6,000 square foot shop or whatever it would be. And so that's, that's a big part of it is access to real estate. Uh, the, the so you're saying pre-existing shops, right? Pre-existing shops. Like most of ours have been acquisitions. Like we've, we've, we've opened two stores new, the rest, the other 30 have been acquisitions. Wow. And so like, so that's the other big reason. If, if I was like beers, tire and auto or whatever, you know, maybe we have one location, but then I'm like, all those Midas's are never going to convert to an independent because the franchisor has real estate control. And so even if the owner wanted to, the franchisor wouldn't allow it. And so then my, my path as an independent- Wait, explain to, that to me. Explain that to me. How does that work? Yeah, like, so is it the, the owner of the franchisor? Yep. So, all the, so real estate control is, you know, there's a couple different variables, right? Depends on who owns it. Now in, in Midas's case, they own some of the properties and rent to franchisees, right? Like the McDonald's model or whatever. Uh, some are owned by a REIT, like Midas owned a bunch back in the day and then they needed money. So they sold, they packaged up and, and sold them uh, and they're all triple net leases too. So it's like a very attractive investment, uh, for the landlords. And so, you know, they're tied up in these big REITs with billions of dollars. They, they never sell. And then you've got third party landlords who sometimes will lease directly to Midas, who then lease subleases to franchisees. And then sometimes you've got third party landlords that re lease directly to franchisees or you know, the franchisee, like we, op, we own like seven of our properties. But in all those cases, especially ones where third parties are involved, like the REIT or, you know, the third party landlords or even franchisees, they want franchisees to sign uh, various levels of real estate control documents. Like one's an optional lease assignment, one's a conditional lease assignment. Basically, it says that, you know, hey, if, so I'm a third party landlord, my lease is up with the Midas, the Midas franchisee, and I want to lease this thing to Mavis now or Pep Boys or whoever, you know, they have this, this control document that says, you know, we have the option to, to rent, to rent it. And then, you know, we would assign it to another franchisee and to kind of be the middleman. And so a lot of franchise, especially real estate based ones have these, these real estate control documents in place, uh, in order to not lose like entire markets, uh, which, which has happened wow. in, in the Midas system years ago. Somebody owned an entire market, didn't, didn't agree to any of the real estate stuff. And a competitor came and they, they sold, you know, they sold their shop. So they shut them down and they sold all the real estate or leased the real estate. And so in a, in a minute they lose an entire city. And so. Why did I see 
Like, why did I see a couple of years ago all these like Mavis discount tires pop up throughout the Northeast? Like, what's what's the deal? Yeah, with so that? Mavis is backed by a private equity company, and it's purely an acquisitions play. So they bought out all of the NTBs, and they just bought out the rest of the, like Tire Kingdoms, which is like a sister corporate sister brand of Midas. Uh, you know, they're on this M and A spree, and they have I don't know two thousand locations now. Maybe it's three thousand. Wow. It's, it's but they have a completely different model than we do. Like they're I, it, it's it's. It's it's completely different. Like what, it's a lot what's of the core hit. difference? Oh, yeah, what's the core well, difference? So other, than, uh, other than the fact that they have like few money backing them. Yeah, so that's <laughs> a big part of it. So they buy they buy a they buy a property for what's called eight hundred grand. That's you know dilapidated. They fix it up. They sign themselves a lease, paying like one hundred and twenty k a year, one hundred fifty k a year, and then they sell it as you know at a five cap or a six cap, and flip it for like one point five two million dollars or whatever. So they've got oh, this, they flip the property. Yeah, so that's a huge like sale lease back. So they get a whole bunch of cash for selling these properties that they're the tenant. And then the goal of like them on an operational basis is just to pay this lease. And then they have all this back end money on rebates for selling boatloads and boatloads of tires. How do you source your shops? So yeah, franchises, right? So this is this is a big reason why franchises. And so, you know, when you're part of a franchise, it's kind of like this community where everybody knows each other. And so you know, franchisees want to sell to other franchisees. And so when these older guys and ladies are looking to retire, they're looking for another franchisee to sell it to. You know, the bigger, the better. You know, it's more secure. A lot of times, you know, our deals are seller finance, which we can talk about. Uh, and so they either come to me directly and say, hey, Brian, I, you know, would, would you buy my store? Or, you know, I'm reaching out to them saying, hey, we're looking to expand in, you know, you know the next six months or in X city. Uh, would you be interested in selling? And, you know, I give them all the reasons of why they should sell to me. And that's, that's where I get most of them. Sometimes the franchisor brings me deals. Like they'll sit down with somebody, do a business review. And, you know, they say they want to exit the franchisor, uh, you know, regional manager comes to me, says, Hey, so-and-so wants to sell. Um, he wants 150 grand. He wants 200 grand, whatever it is. And, and I call him up and we, we get a deal. And so, uh, that's my, that's my primary source. The others through brokers. Uh, you know, there's a Pet Boys that was closing down and, you know, we had heard about it and we swooped in there and, you know, got a, got a lease with them, bought the equipment from Pet Boys Corporate. You know, we flipped the banners and up and running in like a month. Um, and then other, you know, we're looking at independents to buy too that are just off market or on market. And you said you typically go for seller financing when you buy these? Yeah. So we've done, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so most of our sales, so we have, I, I don't know, I forget the number, maybe 6 million more in, in acquisitions, almost all seller financed. And so wow. kind of how that works is the seller becomes the bank. And so instead of me going out and getting a loan and paying a, a down payment and principal and interest, uh, I, the seller, like I pay a down payment to the seller. We have a note. I pay them principal. I pay them interest. You know, they have all the, the same securities a bank would. They have a personal guarantee. They have a lien on the assets. Uh, you know, if I default, in theory, they get to keep all the money and potentially take, you know, take the business back or have, you know, a lien on the assets. Um, so they have a lot of protections. And for me, you know, it creates these win-win scenarios. Some cases, these these some of these ones we're buying like aren't profitable. Like they they're potentially losing money, and so it, you couldn't get traditional financing on them either way. And then the cash price someone would be willing to pay, like they might not willing to accept. But you know, a seller finance deal where it's like low money down and payments. Uh, usually, we can create some win-win deals that that get them cash flow, which is what they want, and we're looking for a good cash on cash return. So we have like low risk and low money into the deal. And then we have the ability to, to, to work these in things into our world and get them rolling. That's great. So when you, what do you look for in a shop, right? Like how do you add value? Is there, are there do you, do you even care? Like, do you just, you know, if you can find the real estate, you'll buy it or do you look for some specifics? Well, depends. So if it's an existing shop in our footprint, right. Um, which I, we kind of have these three distinct markets, uh, we'll, we'll buy it. Like it, there, it's, there's, as long as it's a you know three three ish times earnings is what we're, we we want to pay, uh, if it's you know if it's losing money or, or, or over not what time period? So if uh, I if the we'll shop take like just a year, the last year. So if it's making a hundred grand it. a year, we'll pay three hundred grand for it. Um, Got it. Generally, we try to get it owner financed, and you know with maybe like fifty grand down and you know three grand a month for the next whatever x amount of months or, or years. Mm -hmm. And the owners like that, right? Because they have some, you know, they're maybe retiring, but they have a, a consistent flow of income coming in. Yeah, they like the cash flow. They like the fact that, you know, when you sell on an installment loan, which is what these are, uh, you get to def you get to 
you get to pay your capital gains in installments. So like instead of them getting hit all at once and then giving this money to like in, into the stocks or, or whatever, you know, they kind of get to defer out their tax gains and then pay monthly. And so it there's, there's a huge benefit from that. And a lot of them just like they're used to making, you know, getting that deposit every month. And like, it's just natural for, for, for these like small business owners to continue that, that flow. So, so back to my question, is there something specifically that you would look for to add value or are you just buying everything that you can find because the real estate's so hard to find? Yeah. So we'll buy any, any existing store that's in our market. Now, our problem now is we bought almost all the ones that we can buy except for the, the other major players. So there's like three or four left. Um, and I guess what we look to do maybe is kind of the better question of how do we add value, I think is, is, is what you're getting at, which a lot of it is, is, is culture, right? Every, every franchise and every automotive, like we're in the people business, right? We just happen to fix cars. And so a lot of it is our ability to get people, um, you know, re-energized. We get them focused. We get them excited about the future. A lot of times when these older owners want to sell, like they haven't been putting any money back into the business. They're probably behind on their times. Most times their computers like don't work. The phone systems are crap. Like, and so we go in there and, and they don't, they never see them. So we go in there and we have like, you know, this whole leadership team, we get the guys on a, a better comp plan that can like, you know, they have upward potential. It's, it's pay for performance. We do a bunch of advertising. We generally paint the buildings. We're like, you know, we, we, we come in with a ton of energy and I mean, we've had cases, literally this happened a couple of weeks ago, about two stores up in, up in Allentown. It's kind of a funny, kind of a funny story though. So we bought these two stores. They were both doing about a million bucks each and netting terrible margins. They were netting, I want to say it was two, 200 grand, maybe less than that. A hundred grand. Well, what, what, both. Is it, what's the percent margin? Well, so these, you know, we, we run about 12% roughly mm-hmm. all in as company. And, and, and these stores were netting what? These netting were like half that. Let's call it six, five. Okay. So keep and going. So yeah. Doing about $2 million between both of them, a million each netting about a hundred, about a hundred grand. So bar- barely making any money. And so we go in there, we buy these, we two, these two, two stores and the, the first store, everyone's like pretty excited for the change. Uh, we put on these new comp plans. We don't change much more. Immediately they're 50% up. So now going from 20 grand to 22 grand a week, we're now doing 30 to 35 grand a week. How? Same exact people, same exact advertising. And same exact, how'd you do that? I have no idea. No, no but, like what happened? You just came in yeah. and they saw you and they're like, let me work harder. Yeah, pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's that and like. You know, and, and comp plans help. Like they had no upside. Everybody was hourly. And so they had no incentive to, to move ah, any faster. Okay. That's so, meaningful. So you move yep, them to like commission-based or- Yeah. yeah. They're, they're techs are commission, more commission-driven. Uh-huh. They have an hourly guarantee, which actually was the same, like pretty high guarantee that they had before. But now we give them an upside that says, hey, if, if you produce over X, like once you hit your nut, like you get a percentage of everything over that. And so, so that was the first store. The, the second store- um, everybody was like against all the changes we wanted to make and they all quit after three weeks. And so we've, uh, we've now restaffed that store, but why, but pretty why funny. did they quit? I don't, I don't, I don't know. We don't, they all just disappeared on a Saturday. They dropped their keys in a lockbox, and, um, yeah. you know, the benefits of multi-unit yeah. ownership is like, we don't skip a beat cause we can just rotate other guys in there. And, um, oh, so that's what you typically do. You'll just rotate from another, yeah. another shop to another, one, one shop to the other. Yep. If, if needed. So, and, and how are these stores doing now, the, the two stores you recently purchased? Yeah. So the one's up, I mean, we're having a record month over record month. I mean, it's doing, I don't know, it was doing about 80, 80 to 90 grand a month. And now it's doing 130 to 140 a month. The other one's about, about down a little bit still because of the restaffing, but how, how are you finding techs? How are you finding technicians? What do you do with that? It's, it's indeed, it's, it's everything else, you know, it's, it's referral based. I mean, we, we when we bring out new people, we're trying to find out who they know that were, that were also good techs and, and, and mm-hmm. bring them on. You know, we, we try to provide a good culture, which is, you know, you've got this upside, you know, our, our best guys, I mean, our best guys can make our best, best guys, three grand, four grand a week. I mean, are, mm-hmm. are they crush it in their machine? What about an they, average, an average tech? Average guys make? making, uh, know, 60 grand, mm-hmm. something in that range. A year. So, but, but how do they really like, how is there so much variability, right? Like is the, is the work just there and it's like waiting for them to take the job and, and fix it or, you know, like, like why is there so much variability between techs? Yeah. A lot of it's, I mean, A, it's, it's, it's motivation. Are they motivated to like, you know, hustle, right? Bring in the car, check it out efficiently, you know, instead of like looking at TikTok, they're on the neck, they're pulling in the next car, they're helping the new tech, like look under it, right? They're hustling to, to do a good job. Yeah. That's a big part of it. 
you know, skill set. Obviously, the guys have been doing this forever. They know what to look for. They know the tricks. You know, when they do a job, they grab all their tools, they put it on a, uh, you know, a cart, and then they're right by the car. The inexperienced guy makes like a million steps back and forth to his box, right? And so there's like time-saving things in there. Uh, that's a big part of it. And then it's the leadership, like speed of the, the speed of the leader, speed of the t- you know team. And so the leaders sometimes will have that new manager come into a shop with the, all the same techs, and he, he's hustling and he's saying, "Hey guys, he's pushing the guys to." to say yes and to, to do more work. And he's talking about factory schedule maintenance and, and all this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, all the techs are producing twice as much as they were the week before, right? Wow. And, uh, and so a lot of it, a lot of it is, is culture-based and that's kind of a lot of our success is, is trying to create that as much as we can. What are your projected returns on an acquisition? Like IRR, payback period, what are you looking for? Uh, we don't really like, we're not that, that math uh, dr- driven in terms of IRRs. But like, you know, kind of at this point, we've built it, right? So we've got, we got these, we got, we got all the overhead. We have district managers, we have COO, we have back office, we have all these kind of components. So we can add a new store. So I'm working on right now, I'm buying another store that's in market. We can add that store and have zero additional like incremental overhead, right? Because I've already got all the overhead set. And so, you know, we buy this thing, you know, I'm going to buy it for, I don't know, let's say one, 150 grand. I'm going to buy this thing. It's like not making any money. It's like an asset sale. And so you know, if I, if it can make 50 grand a year, like I have a, I have a 33% return on that, that capital. If it can make 150 K a year, I'm going to have a hundred percent return, like all my money back in the first year. And then each subsequent year, you know, 150 after that. And so that's a little bit different than if you're, you know, if we were going into a new market or if it was like an hour and a half away, it was like this big new thing, you know, and I'm going to put a district manager and I'm going to hire more office people. And I'm going to have all this like overhead associated with buying that store. Like, that one, we're going to have to build out a couple stores and it's going to be a, a different model than, you know, I've got all my fixed costs covered. This one store is, incre- is totally incremental. We can transfer people like to it, from it, promote it. We already have customers in that area, right? Like I've got all these synergies already to add one more is, is not like a huge deal. Um, and, and a big part of like the bigger you get, the easier that becomes. Well, are there any tax shelters you're taking advantage of? I mean, I'm going to have to assume that you said you mentioned you own seven of the properties that those come with some, you know, some good real estate tax shelters. Yeah. So it depends. Yeah. So you can do like cost segs where you buy and depreciate the building, but that only really matter. It, it depends how you set it up. If it's, if you make it part of your existing company, like and treat that as active income for tax purposes, then it can, it can wipe out, uh, some income that we make from the stores. If it's, um, if you keep them separate, like separate LLC and separate, and you treat it more as like a passive income play. Uh, you can do that cost seg, but it only affects like other passive income. It can't affect your, your like active income. So, you know, we have, we have one of them that we do is like, a, like an active income one. We have, all the others are, are more considered passive. Uh, and then we, you know, we have other passive losses to offset that. Uh, the main thing is, you know, when we buy these things, there's a lot of assets, right? And so the main thing is, is has to do with like bonus depreciation where we can, we can bonus, we can accelerate a purchase and, um, you know, that, you know, ex- even though we finance it, especially, you know, seller financing, we might, we might put 50 grand down and buy something for $300,000. And of that 300, 200,000, let's say his assets, we can then write off basically $200,000 that year, even though we only had 50 grand into the deal. And so that's, that's the primary um, tax benefit. But then you kind of get on this hamster wheel as you do these deals. Cause like you buy it, you get all these assets, you depreciate it. And then the next year, you know, now you have all this income from that new thing plus your other stuff. And if you don't do another deal, like, you know, our, our taxes. You don't have the depreciation. We don't have yeah. the depreciation. Now, granted, like things are always breaking. We're always putting in roofs and lifts and alignment machines and all this shit. But like, um, <laughs> it's not the same as like the acquisition that gets us the one big chunk in a, in a single shot. So give us some juicy stuff. What's your best deal, your worst deal? Let's start with best. Yeah. So the best deal, I, I mean, I've got a couple. It depends how you define it, but we had a store we bought at the end of 2018 that was doing about a million dollars. It was netting like, let's call it, let's call it a hundred grand. Uh, so the purchase price was 350. So about three and a half times um, as, as like a multiple. But we, it was a first seller finance deal we structured. And we paid this guy $50,000 down, right? And then he held a note where we paid him, I don't know, three grand a month, let's say for the next uh, five, five years. It was amortized over 10 years, but like five years of payments with the, with the balloon. And so, uh, that store was a, was a funny, doing a million dollars, just like not, it was like average back then. Uh, the manager was like a million dollars, is just top line sales, top line right? Revenue. Yeah, yep. yeah. 
million. And in netting, like cash flow is about a hundred grand, like 10%. Mm-hmm. Yep. But manager was like terrible. He like goes to the casino every night, sleeps in his truck, wakes up the next morning, runs a store. Like n- not, not, not good and not, not good. Techs are like, one of them is drinking on the job, like not good. So we, we completely clean house uh, within a month, basically. We bring in, you know, we had people, we knew this was happening. We had kind of guys in the wings at some other stores. So we, we brought in kind of our guys uh, to the store. And literally overnight, the next year, we did 1.8 million. We doubled, wow. we, we almost doubled the sales. We made like cash flow is about 400,000. So we put, wow. 50, put 50 grand in this thing, made 400 grand the next year. And then that store consisted, we've now the notes paid off totally. And, uh, you know, it, it, it produces roughly that, that 400 grand a year. That's, that's probably one of my best in terms of like, you know, what's a cash on cash return? We get eight times our money on that. Like, I don't know what the yeah. IRR is, but I could tell you it's pretty high. Um, <laughs> so that one's, that and, was and, probably and, the best. And that was, in, that was in one year, right? That was in one year. Wow. Yeah. Um, what about worst? Yeah, so it depends. Uh, you know, in terms of, I have a couple stores that are, are, are losers, like I lose money at. And one of them was part of a package deal. We bought a bunch of stores in New Jersey. And this store was just, used to be one of the best and just got beat up and beat up and beat up with, with manager changes, tech changes, like no consistency. And when we, after we bought it, we lost $100,000 in like nine months. So it burned, you know, kind of, kind of wipes out all the gains we're making at other stores, right? And, you know, we kind of thought, oh, we'd go in there, you know, we're, we're like these pros and, you know, we'll get this thing making money in no time. But like it, it, it uh, and so today it's like now it's only losing like two or three grand a month today. And so we're, we're, we're slowing the burn down, you know, but, yeah. but it takes time. Like sometimes these stores that like, and people know it, like you've, you know, you've been to these shops and like every time you go, it's like a new face and then you stop going. Cause it's like, there's so much inconsistency. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was this store just for years and years and years. And so sometimes we think we have this magic touch, but like, honestly, sometimes it just takes time to, to sometimes get the, right the market in. slaps you in the face and Salmon's um, <laughs> frustrating, but we're, we're, we're making, we're working through it. Yeah, but you're not going to divest it or anything. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to get it to profitability. Yeah, I had an option to. I mean, I had an option after 18 months to not renew it, not renew the lease uh, and just just like walk away. But I couldn't. My ego was too big. I couldn't do that. <laughs> Plus, we figured, we figured we'd At get least it you're honest. around. We're like, we only been doing this for 18 or 12 months or whatever it was. And we're like, we'll, we'll get it. It's on a major road. It's great. It's a great neighborhood. We got a great team now. And so it's 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 coming back. But that that one's tough. We've had some other ones too, similar that like, you know, we just, we just struggle on getting the right people in the store and, uh, and they lose, they lose money until we, until we get the right people in. In terms of the actual shop and the work you sell, what's the, you know, what are the margins just like run me, you know, at a high level, like oil change, tires, mechanics, like how does it actually work? What do you want to get the, you know, the consumer to do spend? Like, how does that whole process work for you? Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on the service, right? Tires are the lowest margin probably have about 25% gross profit on the rubber, right? And then with installation and stuff, it's like 40 or 45. Uh, on service work, so we're doing like suspension or tire, or not tire, like brakes, uh, like a radiator, that kind, of, that kind of thing, exhaust. You know, our goal is to be somewhere around 75 to 80% gross profit. So if it's like a $1,000 job with parts and labor, we want to be, have a cost of goods of somewhere around 200 to 250. Um, and that's kind of like a top, top line numbers that's between cost and labor just 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 materials just oh just, just you're seeing just parts got it yeah and then payroll like our, our tech payroll we want around 70 around uh 15 is is the target and and front shop labors 15 percent of what 15 percent of the sales of the sale yep got it so so total all in if you said roughly 15 percent labor and how much was the parts cost 25 got it so Roughly about 40% cost, 60% margin. Correct. Yeah. If you take technician labor and mm-hmm. uh, parts cost. Yep. Got it. And then is it, do you try to, like, how do you try to bring customers in, right? Like, for example, like, come get your oil change and then let us upsell you. Like, what's that, what's that strategy for you? Yeah. So the main things that work to attract people are oil changes and tires. And in Pennsylvania, we have state inspections. And so those are kind of like the three, like, leaders to, to, to attract customers um and because people don't generally uh, you know they don't like i'm not going to go like just get my like fsm factory schedule maintenance done right like they come in for oil and by the way can you check this or hey by the way i'm hearing this noise or like 
there's some other issue that maybe they've been deferred, but like it's the oil change or the state inspection or sometimes a tire, a tire related issue that drive it. And so th- those are the three primary call to actions. Um, you know, in a franchise, there's like many layers of advertising. You know, there's like national advertising, which is going to be, you know, on, on TV and YouTube and like Pandora and all this, you know, Google and SEO and all this stuff, you know, and then I have a local budget that I, that I spend uh, and we, we focus primarily on direct mail. And so we do like large format, um, huge, like eight by 11 or whatever, huge pieces, huge pieces. Uh, we hit 5,000 homes within like a mile radius of the store uh, once a month. And oh, wow. uh, we spend a lot of, we spend half a million bucks on it a year, but that, that works. Is that, is that across the entire organization? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That works. That works really well because we can track all that from like, what are the mail routes that we mailed to? And then when customers come in, you know, we can do a match back to see, you know, we, we mailed to them in April and they came in in June and they, they never were a customer before, or like we haven't seen them next amount of months and they spent X amount of dollars. So we can, we can hone in on a pretty good ROI on the direct mail spend to sales. We can then like fine tune that to see what routes perform better. And sometimes we'll see that certain routes we mail to, like we get, you know, we mail these pieces and not a single customer comes in and other ones you know, might be bonkers. And then we can also see where are customers coming from, like what mail routes, but then we're not mailing to. And so then the assumption is like, you know, that customer profile, you know, their neighbors might also need our services. And so then we, we try to mail to those people. So it's kind of this, um, you know, trying to dive into the numbers and the data to figure out, you know, how, how do we, how do we get in front of these people? Then it's just consistency. Then it's like to be successful in direct mail, you got to do it like all the time, every month. People do it like wow. one month every six months or like, oh, it's not working. And it's like, well, people, people only get the cars fixed like twice a year. So like, you got to get in front of them the two times a year that- Is that true? To, is it only uh, twice a year? Two, three. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it depends. Like your know, yeah. oil change intervals are getting longer, right? People get their oil change and state inspection done usually in the same visit. And then it's, you know, maybe they have a, some sort of issue, but they're not coming once a month. They're not coming once a quarter. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what I mean? So two to three times, let's call it, per yeah. car. And then, uh, yes, yeah, so you got to be in front of them when in top of mind when they need the service. Do you, if, if I'm a consumer, what, what would you tell me? Like, what's the best way to maximize the dollars I'm spending at an auto repair shop? Yeah. So, I mean, let's take care of your car. Right. And we've had late, we've had, we had this one lady who had a Toyota Avalon, I think she had like 400,000 miles on this thing, like original engine, wow. original everything. She was like always getting the high mileage or this, like this oil changes, which are kind of like, you know, better for, um, better for the motor. She did all the FSM. She always like took care of everything. Right. She was like, she was like an addict around like making sure. And she drove a ton. She was like a traveling sales salesperson. Um, that was one of the, well, I was one that like, and I, I knew her pretty well when I was out working in the stores cause she's come in every three months and you know, the people that take care of their cars, like they last longer. I mean, it's, it's a known fact The people that like don't, and they're going like way past oil change intervals. And then we check the dipstick and there's like no oil and it's super low. And you know, that's not, that's not good for the cars. It's not good for the fuel injectors. It's not good for all these, all these components. And so, uh, that, that's a big one. Um, I would say the main one. Do you, do you track like the lifetime value of your customers? No, not, it's a, it's a number we're working to get, you know, that's one of the challenges out of our point of sale system is, is some of those more, uh, advanced, uh, metrics are, are not tracked. And we are, we, this is like, our, our internal IT team in the Philippines here of, of trying to develop to figure out what are some more, you know, habits of certain customers that we can track to determine like, lifetime values. But one of the biggest things is that, you know, we, we offer a number of um, payment options for people. So, you know, they have like a, have a car, Midas card, they can get like six to 12 months, or we have like a subprime option uh, that they can get, you know, th- 90 days, whatever interest-free, and then it turns into, you know, a, a pretty high interest product. But what we see is that the consumers that do these products, they visit us twice as often. When they, when they come, they spend twice as much. And so that a consumer that we can get on a, on a payment plan will spend with us four times as much as a customer who does not um, utilize one of these plans. We, we, we see it because of the why, right? Uh, the loyalty factor is that, you know, do, do you have like a Home Depot or, or a Lowe's credit card? I don't. Yeah, okay. I'm very, I'm very picky on credit cards. Okay. I have two. So most people, I actually just made a third just okay, for a very deal. specific reason. Yeah. <laughs> so but so most ahead. people, 
will have only one. They go to Home Depot and they have a Home Depot card. They go to Lowe's and they have a Lowe's card. It's pretty rare to find someone who has both, right? And so part of that is because like they get the card, it creates this like mental connection to them. And then they, they consistently go back to that location and they go there for all their stuff. And they don't use their Home Depot card every single time, but you know, they get comfortable at it. And it's the same thing in automotive. Like people get a Firestone card, they'll get a like a Mavis or Pep Boys or Midas, whichever, whoever gets it first generally will keep that customer until they mess it up. And then they'll, then they'll try someone else. And it's, so that's the, that's the main thing. There's also promotions, you know, it's, it's whatever, interest-free and, and high interest environments. Uh, and we can help make this like large, unexpected expense affordable. And so our, we pitch it to our guys, like you sell cars, which is like, instead of paying, you know, 1200 bucks, it's, it's $200 a month. Right. And we, we try to focus on payments instead of focusing on the large number. Uh, and then we find that we're having more and more success in that in terms of increasing lifetime value of customers is financing is a key for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes total sense. And by the way, on, on that topic, I mean, wh- what are you seeing in terms of your average, you know, order per user or, or, you know, average revenue per, per job, like whatever, I don't know, what's the metric you're tracking? Like, how are you seeing these you know, orders just rise in, in cost right now after all this demand for auto repair and inflation and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our average, we call it an average RO or average repair orders, like Got technology. It. And yeah, I mean, it's up. I mean, we're at about three, 350 a car right now. I'd say we were like 300 a car uh, prior. And so it's probably up at least 10, 10 or percent, 10, 15%. You know, the other factor though, is our car counts down. So we're seeing less cars. And so that's, that's interesting. part of it too, is that, you know, it, it depends on the store, but like, especially lately, car count's been down, uh, you know, I don't know, 5%, something in that range, 2%, something in that range. And so, you know, I think a lot of what we're losing is kind of the, the maintenance, the smaller, you know, dollar repairs. And what we're seeing more of is these, these higher cost repairs, right? And so that Explain helps. that to me. Like, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Uh, how do I, how do I view that? It was just like, when we look at the distribution of, of like the size of the tickets that we're doing, we're, we're getting more, you know, more expensive tickets and less, you know, lower cost tickets. So less of the maintenance. So if someone comes in just for like an oil change, we're seeing less, like we're, we're seeing less oil changes and less of these smaller tickets, right? Which lowers car count, but because we're also removing some of the, the lower dollar sales, like that also increases your average, right? Cause you're, you're, you're getting rid of the small ones. Uh, why do you think also, that is? What, what, what are those people doing? Like, why is why do you think the lower car count is down? I know I'm just totally asking you to guess, but yeah, why I mean, do you think I have no. Is? I mean, you know, it's a, I, I throw some ideas out there. I think people are driving a little bit less, right? I would think from the work from home aspect of Interesting. it. Interesting. Some of the, you know, uh, and and new cars have longer intervals on oil changes, right? It used to be three thousand miles. Now it's like seven thousand miles. So I think I think all those I think that and then the, the work from home and I think just the people are extending out their visits, right? And I think that's part of it. And that's like, that's like nationwide. That's not just here uh, that we're seeing this, this car count just like soft, softening. Um, but, you know, sales are up though. Cause like I said, we're, we're seeing more of these bigger repairs. So maybe they're not coming as often, but when they come, yeah, you know, they've got this, they've got these stolen catalytic converters. I'm sure you see them. Like, we, yeah, we yeah. Do a ton, we've, we dealt, like, we've dealt with a ton of those. Ton of, ton of c- cats, right? Being stolen and, and replacing those or, you know, uh, break jobs and stuff that just the cost continues to rise. And so, um, you know, sales are up. I have my own opinion as a dealer, but I'm sure you do too on this topic. What are, what are some cars that you would tell consumers to stay away from? Uh, I think we're similar. I mean, high mileage, Land Rovers, BMWs, Mercedes, <laughs> like, you know, oh. uh, it's like if someone comes in with a, yeah. with a Land Rover with a check engine light, we're like, we don't even want to deal with it, to be honest. Cause yeah. like, we'll try to fix it. But then that, like, it won't solve the problem. And then that leads to another problem. And we guys, like, think we made all this money. And then by the end of the day, we're, like, lost money on this job, let alone all the overhead costs. And so a uh, t- ton of problems that, that just lead one to another. Great as new cars, but, like, um, you know, the, the best the ones, the best ones are, you know, the, the Toyotas and the Hondas and the, the, my wife has a Subaru. We love it. Turn and earn. Um, so. Yeah, you know, it's just the, the, the complicated luxury cars, you know, electrical issues, yep. you know. Either we have the right tech for that, or if we're not comfortable, we'll just send it out or we won't deal with it at all. But it's definitely the right move because then you just get buried in these cars. And like you said, someone comes in for, <laughs> for brakes, you know, then they tell you that you messed their trunk latch or something. It's, it doesn't even make sense, but it's sometimes it's not even worth dealing with it. Yeah. So I get it. 
let's take a bit of a step back now. When you think about your business and this industry and just everything we've gone through over the last couple of years, right? Like there's been tailwinds, there's been headwinds. I mean, it's been very, very, you know, volatile with everything going on. What do you predict for your industry, the auto repair business? How does it evolve over these next five years? Yeah, five years. Um, I don't know. It's, it's going to continue, continue to grow, right? I mean, auto has grown consistently over, over you know, decades, right? Um, you know, cars don't fix themselves, right? I mean, you know, we, we, can all, we can all joke about AI and all this stuff, but like that's not coming towards us. You know, we can get into like EVs and all this other things. And, you know, at the yeah, end what, of the day- what are, you, what are you doing about EVs? What are you doing about that? Uh, I'm doing nothing right now. But, <laughs> you know, the average car we work on is seven to 10 years old. All right. Some, something in that range. So even if 100% of cars went EV like tomorrow, like we, we still have seven to 10 years or whatever of, of all these, you know, gas cars, right? There's this huge, like we don't see them for a while. So A, we have this long headwinds. Uh, number two is like 60% of our business is, is wheel well. So brakes, tires, steering, suspension, right? Every EV has all those components. Uh, I think a couple of things. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on it. But one of them is that, you know, they need, they burn through tires, right? So I think tires become a bigger business. Um, I think that there's consolidated, there's massive consolidation. So there's going to be less bays just in the market. So then the ones that are left, right? So maybe the market shrinks a little bit, but there's going to be less bays. So then it gets mm-hmm. con- consolidated More probably to yeah. major players, right? Uh, we see it all the time, these independent shops going out and they become not automotive, right? So we lose those, the market loses those bays. Uh, there is a whole new suite of like technical things that, that, that we can do, right? We're, we talk about ADOS, which stands for like a advanced driver assistance system. It's like the LIDAR and the backup camera and the lane detector, all this crap. And so there's like a ton of sensors related to all those, you know, all those sensors and all that smart technology. And so it gets to the point where like you're going to replace a light bulb and you got to take the bumper off. And when you take the bumper off, then you got to recalibrate, you know, all these sensors that, that have all this, this fancy stuff. And that, you know, that, that reset on that, those sensor recalibration is going to be $500, right? And it's going to have no cost of goods and it's going to be pretty profitable. Um, and so I think there's this whole new suite of other repairs that we're going to need to do that we don't even know about today. You know, we think about EVs like the, you know, the average car we work on today is 100,000 miles. Like what is the average GM electrical vehicle with 100,000 miles going to look like? Like we don't, we don't, we don't really know. Nobody really knows, right? Um, and, and the whole new suite of issues that's going to have. Uh, and then I've got this other thing. I, I like, a, like your take on this. I've heard that there's like, so manufacturers can make these things, right? There's no, there's no limits there. But it, it comes to this issue with grid capacity and that the grid can only like, you know, generate enough electricity to charge a certain percentage of the market share. And then after that, it's kind of at capacity. And I've heard it's been like, I don't know, eight to 10%, something like that of, of market share. And then, and then they have to like build nuclear power plants, or there has to be some sort of like new energy source to, to, to overcome a grid capacity issue. Yeah. Look, I've been speaking with a lot of smart people and I think that there's going to be challenges along the way for EV, continued EV adoption, but I don't think that's going to stop it. For me to say this, like I don't have a horse in the race, right? I'm, I just love observing and seeing how this is all growing. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, my audience is both sides of the aisle, quote unquote. Um, but I do think that I just, I never bet against innovation. I think there's a market for internal combustion. There's a market for electric vehicles. Um, but I think that as long as there's demand and demand is growing for EVs, um, I think that, you know, the market will find a way to be able to, you know, fulfill that demand one way or another. So I I think there's going to be challenges, but I wouldn't say like, I'm not of the belief that like suddenly, like hypothetically, if there's all this demand for electric vehicles that, you know, the grid wouldn't, I'm not, I'm no grid expert either, but that it wouldn't be upgraded or whatever needed to be done, however it needed to be done, the right lobbying groups, whatever, in order to make it, to make it happen. So that's my, you know, non-technical opinion. Yep. Um, but I also think we have, you know, there's a long time till it gets there. Yeah. Right. Like market share is not growing. Uh, it's not doubling every single year or anything like that. It's on exponential. Um, yet. And so I think that's, you know, it just buys time for, for these advancements to happen, especially if we've gone through this like zero interest rate period, um, where, you know, consumer spending was just like off the charts and now we're, you know, entering more of a contraction. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's going to all get 
all gets figured out over time. I have no idea what that market share looks like on uh, the split, you know, in 10 years. But I do think it grows from here. The question is how much and how far. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that's the main, I guess that's my, I think the people think the adoption is really quick, but I think the the ta- it's, a, it's a much longer rollout. And, and, and what does it look like in the end? It's probably a mixture. You've spoken about this, I know, where it's not 100% EVs, but there's EVs, there's like plug-in, plug-in gas or whatever, where it's got both and then there's all gas and then maybe there's, you know, maybe there's hydrogen or another, another fuel type as well. But at the end of the day, all, all of them need to get fixed, right? Like, what about robotics? Like, have you heard of RoboTire, the company RoboTire? Have you heard of that? I've heard of it. I've seen them. I've seen them. Uh, you know, I know Discount Tire's got a bunch of them or, or, or testing them you know, out, out west. And uh, it's interesting, you know, <laughs> interesting. we don't do enough tires to, to like justify it, <laughs> but um, yeah, Got I mean, it. I guess if we could have a robot change brakes one day, that'd be cool. But I think it's, uh, I think we're a long way away from that. You don't seem too enthused. I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I, I think there's so many other little things I got. Like these cars, like we, we think about these cars, right? Like it's not like it's a putting together a car in a factory where everything's perfect. Like yeah. s- things get rusted. You got to spray. They got to soak. Things got to like something breaks they got to like a stud breaks right they got to be able to like pop out the stud and put a new stud in like yeah. the the idea that a robot is going to like figure all that stuff out or like for decades or yeah, you're, you're, you're skeptical <laughs> it's not like it's making a pizza here so yeah well we saw how that ended up <laughs> yeah right yeah well, nah, it's going to be interesting to see um you know what, what really how that does evolve i think robo tire what what impresses me about them by the way i'm i'm a small lp in robo tire through a fund that i invested in but they are um, the fact that they're actually operational and you could actually see them replacing tires, it's pretty damn impressive. Okay. So I'll have to check it. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if Robo tires, the one that I, so it, does it actually change the tire from start to finish? Yeah. Yeah. It does. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. But I, I think, I think you're right. I think discount tires are what it's tested. I'm, I could be wrong, but I'm looking at this thing. Yeah. Now. It's going to be interesting to see if robotics, no, you know, I don't think, I think it was a different one. I think it was one that just, it, it didn't take it off the car. It just changed the whole thing. Like you put it on the. You know, and it took off the old tire, put the new tire on, but then a human had to like bolt it to the car. Oh, got it. No, uh, it was just it, the machine, so. the machine part of it. But um, yeah, could be, could be the future. Could be my shop, just a whole bunch of robots fixing cars, changing tires and like one employee with a kiosk. What's next for your group? Are you, you know, continuing to be acquisitive, looking to make more acquisitions here? What, what's the deal? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, we're, we're constantly looking at, you know, buying out. A other other franchise units, other you know independents that we can convert. We were looking at new markets. You know, we've looked at you know DC. We've looked into like Northeast. We looked into the Midwest. We looked at Florida. You know, but p- part of it is for us like we want to go in. We want to buy a group of at least five stores, four to five stores, existing Midas's, right? And then which gives us enough like payroll to be or dollars to be able to hire the the district manager to live in market and to manage it. And then from there, we got to build it up to like six or seven in that market to really like. Yeah. So you're looking, you really want to have a district manager over all those GMs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I got one district manager. Kind of my structure is like, we have, you know, we have about, it's me, my brother, we have a COO and then the COO has four district managers that report to him. And then each one of those four district managers oversees roughly eight stores. Uh, And now all my stores are like pretty consolidated. Um, and so it's, it's, they can get, you know, from 15 minutes from one to the next. So that makes it easier to manage any, anything more than that. If they had 10 stores or 12 wow. stores, that becomes too many, right. Um, to actually like get in the week to, to actually help and not just be like high level. But they've like four stores. It's kind of like not enough to justify the, the payroll costs that, that, that person, um, that we invest in that person. So, you know, for us and to who kinda, do, And who does the COO report to? Uh, me. Got it. Understood. Yep. And so, um. Yeah, so for us, it's kind of like if we can fill a store in market, you know, almost zero incremental overhead besides like the store level, right? But if we talk about going into new markets, then, you know, I can't just buy one store in Maryland. I can't buy one store in like New York. Like for 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 it to make sense, I gotta have I gotta have a group of them, and um, so we're we're looking at that. Um, you know, it's also you know, listen, like we could so we do about forty million right now in, in revenue for our. 30, 32 locations. How did I not um, ask you that yet? I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> but you can, you can add it sooner, but yeah, we do about 40 million, but like, you know, my best store, so 1.2 million a store, my, my best stores do over 2 million. My worst stores do like, you know, 700 or whatever. So in theory, like, you know, if I can get all my stores to 2 million, which is totally possible, I mean, we could be doing 60, 70 million in revenue and in very strong margins. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, what's like, the net margin on 40 million? Uh, 12%. 
Got it. Make make about four million or so. Um, about 150k a store, and so, you know, we look at like you know if we can double the sales, we more than double the profits too, because like a lot of the fixed overheads covered, right? And so, um, that's kind of like our 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 primary focus. Yes, growing acquisition side, but also like harvesting and, and getting a lot more out of what we already got here. Fascinating, Brian. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for just sharing your knowledge and experience. Super interesting and. As again, as a dealer, I I didn't know these numbers, the economics of an auto repair business. It's just not something we focus on, or have ever focused on. Again, we're not franchise where you know service is a big part. Even even if so, like franchise dealership business is still very different from the yeah. you know standalone auto repair business. So just fascinating insight um, for for the audience that's curious about this, wants to learn more about you, your platform. Where where can they go to learn more? Yeah, but uh, Twitter at Brian Beers is is where I'm the most active. Um, I have a podcast as well. It's called business with beers. You know, I, I primarily focus that on, uh, helping other people get into franchises, not just automotive, but all types of different franchises. And so, um, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on, on that as well, which is, um, a whole nother business and conversation itself. But, uh, you know, franchising has been great to me and my family. And, you know, I think for, it just happens to be an automotive, but you know, the opportunities exist in, in home services and all different types of types of models. So. Um, and that's the best place. And why did you start that? I'm curious. I have some, I I'm, I'm speculating. I have so many reasons why, but in my head, but why, why did you start the, you know, this kind of media business on the side? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was, I was on Twitter. I'm talking about growing, uh, how I, you know, gr- growing our franchise business here. And so I had all these people come to me asking like, how do I, you know, I don't want to do automotive, but how does this, you know, how can I do this in X, Y, or Z or what should I look for? All these questions. And, and we've, we've bought and sold other franchises too along the way. Midas is our most successful one, but we, we had some others. So I've, I have some, some pretty good experience in, in all kind of facets of it. And so, you know, I was like looking for ways of how can I help these people and how can I, you know, make some money on it. And so there's this whole world of franchise consulting, franchise brokering, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, we kind of act as, um, you know, middle, middlemen to help, you know, I've, I joined this network. I've got like 700 brands that are part of this network. And then people come to me, you know, I kind of figure out, you know, and I have this team I'm, I'm building, but, you know, we figure out what are their goals, what are their skills, what's their budget, where are they located? And then we can take all the information and then kind of filter through the 700 brands to say, here's like, whatever, four or five options to start with that, that kind of meet all your expectations. And then, you know, we make introductions to the, to the brands and it doesn't cost the, the candidate anything. And if they end up signing up and, and, you know, we help them find a brand they love, the franchisor pays us a, a referral fee. And so, wow. uh, that's kind of the business model. And that's cool. And, um, anyway, I'm, I'm like pretty good at it because I've like, I actually like know what I'm talking about where a lot of people that do this, uh, who are in this industry come from corporate America. Like they have no idea. They've never owned a franchise. Like, you know, they're just yeah. regurgitating stuff they learned on a course. And so, uh, I, I have a unique perspective on it. Yeah. And it's fun to, you know, like for me, at least the, the media is a creative outlet, you know, yeah. it's a place to just be very creative and try new things. So I definitely yeah. resonate. Yeah, and just connect with other people. I connect with all types of cool people and uh, private equity guys want to le- learn more about franchising and automotive. And I, you know, I make I make a lot of new friends. Um, so it, it provides a good outlet for that too. Well, dude, this has been great. Thanks again for coming on, and that's just been a true pleasure. Cool. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.